0: Random stabbings, violent assaults, carjacking, smash and grabs, drug trafficking, human trafficking, child exploitation, that's what you get when you give the inmates the key to the jail and the Democrats the seat in office. Today's show is going to be all about the culture of lawlessness, aided, abetted, fostered, and even cheered by the left. What is happening is not criminal justice reform, it's felon and thug coddling, it's about time we draw a line between the two. Later, I'll be joined by criminal justice advocate and legal mentor to Kim Kardashian, Jessica Jackson, to help draw that line. So lock the door, batten down the hatches. We're about to tackle Gotham City, USA, and the show starts now. Meet Jean McGuire. She's a 91-year-old civil rights trailblazer and the first black woman to serve on the Boston School Committee. Last week, she was stabbed multiple times while walking her dog in a Boston park she's been going to for decades. But she can't do that anymore, and sadly, the same probably goes for the rest of us. Ambushed, attacked, stabbed for no reason. She, by the grace of God, is expected to survive, but her attack isn't some freak occurrence. It's becoming the norm in big cities and even small towns and suburbs, and it doesn't matter what color you are, how well-educated you are, what your pronouns are, or who you voted for. No one is safe. And why? Because thugs, felons, monsters, and degenerates know they can get away with it. It's not even safe to go to a freaking Taco Bell at 7 p.m. in L.A. anymore, folks. Folks. 7 p.m. in the Mara Vista area of LA, an elderly and disabled man is ambushed from behind and stabbed multiple times before his assailant just runs out of the store. What the hell is wrong with people? Who raised that kind of monster who would do something like that to an elderly man in a fast food restaurant, a total stranger? Not only do I wonder what happened to law and order in this country, I wonder what happened to God. And I don't care if you're not religious or my religion offends you. We need God back in this country. We need parents who teach their children about God back in this country. We need Christians and conservatives and God-fearing people from all faiths to stop ceding our ground to these unholy vultures attempting and largely succeeding to rid all things pure and all things godly from society and popular culture. Every time we stay quiet, they win. And what the hell are we quiet for? Because we don't want to offend people? Because we don't want to be disliked, unfollowed, or unpopular? No, enough, that's weakness. And it's our own weakness and meekness that's gotten us to this point. We need law, we need order, and we need God. And we need to elect leaders who believe in all three. Period, end of story. Still ahead, she famously mentored Kim Kardashian, but has spent a good part of her life working behind the scenes and off camera to bring about true criminal justice reform.
1: we <laughs>
0: If you're a reality TV fan like myself, you may recognize my next guest from her legal advocacy and mentorship work with someone by the name of Kim Kardashian. But what you may not know is Jessica Jackson has dedicated her career as a human rights attorney to clemency cases in the fight against mass incarceration. Now, as a law and order, lock them up and throw away the key type of girl myself, we don't always see eye-to-eye, but we can agree on one thing. There is a big difference between ending unjust mass incarceration and opening the jailhouse door. Joining me now is human rights Attorney and Chief Advocacy and Operations Officer of Reform Alliance, Jessica Jackson. Jessica, so great to have you. Thanks for having me on, Tommy. So we have kind of an unlikely pairing, though we see eye to eye on some things. Obviously, when it comes to criminal justice, I am very law and order, and I know that you dedicate your time to making sure we end mass incarceration. But I think there's actually a lot of synergy between the two. But unfortunately, we aren't drawing the right lines, and the lines have been blurred in a lot of cases. But before we jump into it, I just want to let folks know that you and I were actually connected by a a man by the name of Van Jones, of all people, connected you and I, which is unlikely in all realms that he would talk to me and then you and I would talk and everybody's connected. But he thought that you and I might actually have some similarities and want to tackle some of the same things. So that's what I want to start with. What is the difference between what you're doing, ending mass incarceration, and what we're seeing now, the culture of lawlessness, the smash and grabs, the no cash bail, everything that's really tormenting our cities? Where is that line?
2: Yeah, well, I think both you and I start with our synergy being around public safety. I've got kids, you know, I, I've got myself and, and my daughters and my son, and I want us to have a safe community. And I think you agree with me. Uh, we want our streets to be safe and the current system just doesn't get us there. So that's the first line of synergy that we have. Uh, in terms of where we are now, you know, we, we are seeing, uh, crime increase in some aspects, Uh, but I think it's an indictment of the current system. There have been some reforms that have been passed, but overall, we still have a big bloated prison system that fails 68% of the time to actually rehabilitate people, to get them the supports that they need to succeed, and to make sure that they come out productive citizens. So I think the first place we can start is by talking about how do we actually address the underlying reasons why people are committing crime. Before we even get to, you know, what do we do once the crime has been committed? How can we prevent that crime? How can we get mental health services to people who need them? How can we get substance abuse counseling? You know, we have a a terrible opioid epidemic. How can we get more economic opportunities out there so that people aren't committing crimes and so that there aren't new victims?
0: Yeah, I think that's such an important distinction to be made too. But I think where people like me get stuck is that there are people that really do want to be rehabilitated. There are people that were in a bad position. They were raised poorly. They feel like they have no other options. Crime is the option. They were raised in a community that fostered criminal activity. So I totally understand that there's people that are crying out for help. But then you have another segment of the population, people that, quite frankly, probably don't want to be rehabilitated, that should be behind bars. And people like me, when we start talking about criminal justice reform, we're worried that the people that really should just be behind bars are going to be swept up in all those people. When you start releasing people and you start relaxing the rules, regulations and guidelines, what do we do to prevent something like that from happening if we can at all?
2: Yeah. Again, I think it starts with actually figuring out why people are committing crimes, right? Mental health is a huge part of why people are committing crimes. 57% of the prison population nationwide has at least one diagnosed mental health issue when they're coming into the prison system. Not, not even when they're leaving the prison system, which often, you know, they're, they're, uh, much worse off than when they came in. So we've got to start by talking about mental health. We've got to start by talking about addiction. Like I said, there's a huge opioid epidemic. There's other, other addiction out there. We don't do anything to help people once they come into the system, if they have been suffering from addiction. What we do know is there are models out there that provide us a lot of a lot of hope. For example, the veterans courts. If you have served our country and you live in a county where there is a veterans court, you can go through a diversion program once there's been a crime committed where you actually get wraparound services. So they'll take a person who's a veteran who's committed a crime and sit down with them and, and figure out why they committed that crime and what services do they need to actually get better. That program nationwide, the veterans courts program has about an 86% rate of success. You'll remember in the beginning, I said, you know, our current prison system has a 68% rate of failure. So it's just so much more success that we're seeing in the veterans courts. We can do that with mental health courts. We can do that with drug courts. We can do that with parenting courts. Um, We could actually address why people are committing crimes and keep them from, from committing any more crimes and get them back on their feet so that they can be successful, you know, tax paying citizens.
0: I have to ask you what you think about some of these activist DAs that we have in many communities. I mean, you're sitting in New York City, so you know that well. I spent a long time in L.A. I know that they have a a horrible time with Gascon in L.A. right now. We've got actually people that are sitting in prison bragging on jailhouse phone calls about how the system is going to be so lenient with them, and they're honestly quite laughable when we when we hear them. So I wonder what we do about these activist DAs who are not looking to do what you're looking to do, which is rehabilitate, go to the root cause the core issues of why people have trouble with the law or they've been incarcerated. These people are just letting people out willy nilly. So I wonder, is that part of it? Do we have to elect better people? And if that's the case, where do we start with that as somebody who's very familiar with what good leadership in this space looks like?
2: You know, I I think we have to take a step back and figure out how all of the different departments can work together. People are coming out of prison when there has been no change in the social infrastructure to allow them to succeed, right? So you have somebody who had mental health problems going into the system, coming out, they've still got those same problems. Um, they're still struggling with those issues, and there's nowhere for them to get help. I've worked personally with several people who have come out just in the last few months um, post-pandemic who got clemency or, or were released because of you know a change in the laws. And it is very, very difficult for people to get back on their feet when they're coming back into society. There's a real cru- houses housing crisis. Crisis. So there's a need to help find people places to live when they come home. We don't want them to be filling up the shelters. We don't want them to be unhomed, living on the streets. Uh, There's a real need for medical care, for mental health care. There's a need for uh, jobs, for employment, right? How do you get back on your feet if you can't find a job that will hire you? Um, There's a need for transportation. I I worked with a woman who came home under the First Step Act uh, that was down in Alabama and Uh, The nearest job was 20 minutes from her house, but she didn't have a car and there wasn't a bus system. So I think the real issue here is building an infrastructure within our society that allows people to succeed when they're coming home and and sets them up to have that success, Uh, especially when you're looking at things like probation and parole. And and that's what I love so much about my current position at Reform Alliance is we're really focused on supervision and making sure that people who are coming home are able to get a fair shot at coming home successfully and not just get thrown back into prison because they miss a meeting with their probation officer or because they're you know unable to find a job and make that payment on restitution, because that ends up costing colossal taxpayer resources on incarcerating people when we could be using that money instead to address these reasons why they're committing crimes and prevent new crimes. You brought up the First Step Act, which I want to talk about. Uh, that
0: was something that Donald Trump did that got praise, even begrudgingly, from both sides of the political aisle. I personally was against it because I was afraid that people would get swept up in it, that maybe you should be behind bars. But there's a discussion to be had there. I do think it's incredible, though, because like I said, I'm a big reality TV fan. I'm a big Kardashian fan. I've watched all the episodes. I've seen you in a number of episodes. And Kim really has focused a lot of her energy and attention into freeing people. that she feels shouldn't be behind bars working with the Trump White House, working very closely with Jared Kushner. And I think that's kind of an unlikely alliance that a lot of people saw on reality television for the first time. I mean, you're an admitted Democrat that you say you're not woke. I'm obviously a Republican, a conservative, a Trump supporter. But can you tell us about some of the work that you and Kim did with the Trump White House and what that experience was like for those that might just be anti-Trump naysayers that think he can do nothing right?
2: Yeah. So. I got to say, I did not ever in my entire career uh, imagine working with Donald Trump uh, to bring thousands of people home from prison, but we did, and it's had a very, very high success rate. Um, Not only were we bringing people home from prison, but we were reimagining what could happen inside of prisons. We were getting people inside of prisons life-changing classes that they could take uh, that would help them succeed when they came out and and give them some incentives to actually take that programming Uh, getting people IDs when they were coming home so that they could go apply for a job, go apply for housing. Um, We were, you know, banning the shackling of pregnant women and and women in labor. They were actually shackling women who were in labor inside of our prisons, um, which is just disgusting and horrific and so traumatic, both for the mom and for the child involved. Uh, So we made some real changes inside of our prison system for those who are not familiar with the First Step Act. Uh, Kim's involvement All started with a tweet. Uh, She saw a tweet that was a story on a 63 year old grandmother who essentially had connected somebody who was looking to buy drugs with somebody who was selling drugs. Um, Unfortunately, because of uh, the the way our federal system works, she was sentenced to die in prison. And Kim read her story. She uh, looked into her eyes through that picture and she decided she wanted to do something about it. So I first met Kim through that case, Miss Alice Johnson, and she was really one of the first major clemencies that Donald Trump did. And I think Miss Alice is just such an incredible human being and had such an incredible story that Kim was moved. And I remember her saying, you know. Um, It's not just this one, I got to keep going because there's more Miss Alice's inside there. And I think the president was just so moved uh, by Miss Alice that, you know, he decided to sort of break the gridlock we were seeing while we were trying to pass the bill and add sentencing reforms so that people like Miss Alice would have a second chance at coming home and rebuilding their life. And I got to say, Alice has made us all so proud. Uh, She's doing incredible things with her life, as are so many other men and women who came home because of the First Step Act.
0: Yeah. And those are wonderful stories. And I love to hear them. And that actually gives me a lot of hope that we have criminal justice reform. But you brought up something that I want to dig into with you because I really want to understand. We have a lot of people in the criminal justice space that say we need to stop locking people up for drug offenses. We need to stop locking people up for having marijuana or for selling marijuana or that they did sell marijuana. And I can see that. And I agree with that. However, In practice And in reality, some of these people are not just getting caught with a little bit of marijuana or selling a little bit of marijuana. They're selling other drugs as well. And then you mentioned the opioid epidemic. You mentioned people that have addiction problems. So for me, it's hard to say we need to be lenient on people that are selling drugs. But then half the people that are incarcerated are on drugs that people sold them. So it's a weird cycle. And I don't know where we break it. And I don't know where we draw that line between what is an innocent little crime and what is something that actually has real victims, maybe not one specific victim like a murder victim, but other victims when it comes to the buying and selling of drugs. How do we deal with that?
2: I mean, I'll be honest with you. I think we start calling the opioid epidemic and drug use what it really is. It's a public health crisis here in America. Uh, You've got people who are turning to drugs, even drugs like fentanyl that there's a high likelihood it could kill them, right? And we're not providing the care that people need to get off of drugs. Sure, there's rehab if you've got the money for it, um, you know, but we aren't even providing basic things like medical-assisted treatment, which have been shown to work to get people off of opioids. It's very, very difficult to get it. And I'll say our, our justice system makes it even harder. So we know medicine-assisted treatment works for opioids alongside therapy. Um, When you get into a jail like the jail down in Nashville, which I I came in in and toured and you start to clean up and you get sober and you're getting your medicine assisted treatment, you're starting to make plans for how you're going to move on with your life. Well, guess what? While you're inside of that jail, you're kicked off of Medicaid. So let's say you get out, you've done your time, you get out and you're back home. You can't access that medicine that was keeping you sober. You can't access that therapy that was helping you work through whatever problems had driven you to drugs in the first place. Um, you have to go apply for Medicaid all over again. Of course, there's a waiting period. There's paperwork. You might live in a rural area that that complicates things. Um, so there's just so much stupidity inside of our justice system right now, so much fiscal waste, putting money into incarcerating people instead of actually addressing why they might commit a crime in the first place, that we really have to focus on that. We really need to focus on making both mental health treatment and substance abuse treatment uh, uh, easy to get for anybody who's walking around the streets in America who might have a problem, not just something that only the rich can can have access to. Well, I
0: think you're right. We do waste a lot of money on incarceration. I think part of the problem is right now when we're seeing so much lawless in our lawlessness in our streets, people like me and others, maybe more on the conservative side, but really anybody, they're saying, oh, we're going to spend more money on thugs and felons, but meanwhile, we can't afford groceries. I think that there's a frustration there. But I think that's an important distinction to be made. Does it frustrate you at all that this no-cash bail, some of these felon coddling policies that allow people to commit even violent crimes and then be released. Does that at all frustrate you that that's swept up in that banner of criminal justice reform? Because to me, it seems like it does it does a great disservice to what you're actually trying to do. And people don't know the difference.
2: I think what's frustrating me the most right now is that we are going on 50 years of tough on crime policies and we've got the data to show that they don't work. We've got the data to show that if we reinvest money that we're saving from not incarcerating that person for a technical violation, from not locking up that person for you know using drugs, from not locking up somebody who it has a severe mental health issue and needs to get help, um, if we're actually reinvesting that money into programs that work, we have data, we have evidence that shows that it works, that these folks will get back on their feet and succeed, and that it'll prevent new crimes from happening because the last thing we want is crime on our streets. So I think that's my biggest frustration is that we keep just banging our heads against this wall where incarceration is just one size fits all and handcuffs are the only tool that a police officer has in their tool belt. And I'll say I've spent a lot of time with our law enforcement, our friends in law enforcement. In fact, all of our bills here at Reform Alliance have been done in conjunction with members of law enforcement. And I see their frustration too. I've I've spoken to police officers who don't understand why they're expected to just solve all of society's ills, right? That they're having to deal with somebody being homeless, somebody being addicted, somebody having a mental health crisis. And we're not giving them the tools they need. We're not giving them the training they need. We're certainly not giving them the pay that they deserve for actually having to deal with all this. We need to be bringing in community groups. Uh, We need to be bringing in co-responder groups. We need to be setting up society in a way that we're not just incarcerating people every time there's a problem that we don't want to deal with. I think
0: you're right about that, and I'm glad that you brought up law enforcement. That's the kind of the last thing I want to end with because, again, some of the frustrations that people like me have is that we have this problem. We've got people that, like you, who want criminal justice reform and truly want reform that's going to solve problems. Then on the other side of it, and it largely has become very political, you've got an entire defund the police movement that's saying, we want our cops to do better, but we don't want to fund them in order to allow them to be trained to do better. So when you hear the movements like the defund the police movement, What has that in practice done to put a roadblock in your way for reform?
2: Yeah, so I think people who are opposed to any sort of reform often just don't understand what it is that we're pushing for. Right. So when I encounter somebody and they say, you know, we don't want to work with you because of defund the police. I often sit down and explain to them, you know, we're not trying to be. Um, tough on crime here. We're not trying to uh, make our streets any less safe. What we're trying to do is employ smart solutions that are evidence-based, that are, you know, we have the data to show that they will work and they will make us all safer and treat everybody with more fairness, treat everybody with more dignity. And that's what we're trying to employ. And once we sit down and really have that conversation, we can normally break through those roadblocks, which is how, you know, even as a brand new organization, Reform Alliance has been able to pass 16 bills in 10 different states. Uh, we've been able to work with law enforcement, with DAs, with judges, uh, with people who've been directly impacted. Um, same with First Step Act. You saw the most unlikely coalition of everybody from you know business leaders and faith leaders and law enforcement come together with people who had been incarcerated and identify solutions that would keep us all safer. And when you look at the data coming out from the First Step Act, you see that that's exactly what we did. We've got a much lower recidivism rate uh, for all the people who are coming home, and the bill hasn't even been fully implemented yet. So I, I have a feeling it's going to be even more successful when it has. Um, so to me, that is, you know, really how we get through those work blo- those roadblocks, as we show that we have programs and solutions that will really work.
0: Well, I think that what you're doing in a solution based and database and actually getting on the ground and doing the work, not just a banner that looks good on social media or even on reality television, I think that's what it's going to take. And it could even soften up really law and order people like me to understand what you're doing and to get behind it because I agree. Just throwing people in jail and then throwing them back and throwing them back and throwing them back, that's wasting my tax dollars, your tax dollars, and it's not making our streets any safer. So there's reform that needs to be done. I thank you for doing the work. I thank Thank you for being here and explaining it. And even though you and I are on opposite sides of the political aisle and probably largely on opposite sides, even on this particular issue, I think it's so important when we have this dialogue and these conversations because it's true understanding that we want, not just the bickering back and forth and trying to win an argument. So, Jessica, thank you for being here. I'm so happy that Van Jones introduced us. And I think this is good groundwork that we're laying for some bipartisanship and some solutions. And I'm very hopeful for that.
2: Absolutely. Me too. I'm going to be inviting you to come up to DC and and help out with all of our efforts there. Maybe we'll do something in, in Tennessee at some point, but I would love to work with you and thank you for highlighting this and for showing that we, even though we don't agree, can agree on solutions uh, together. Absolutely. And we do hope you come
0: to Nashville. So thank you so much. And I'll talk to you very soon. Talk to you soon. All right, still ahead, third in line to the presidency. Nancy Pelosi threatened to punch out our former president. And my final thoughts are next. Nancy Pelosi threatened to punch out our former president, proving once again that the left is fine with political violence so long as they're inflicting it. It's time for final thoughts.
2: service said
0: they have dissuaded him from coming to capital health they told him they don't have the resources to protect him here so at the moment he is not coming but that could change check. Check. Oh, he comes. i'm going to punch him out oh, my wow. mom. I would pay i'm waiting for this for trespassing on the capital grounds i'm going to punch him out and i'm going to go to jail and i'm going to be happy Ladies, gentlemen, they, thems, that would be our elderly Speaker of the House threatening to punch out a sitting president and be happy about it. Boy, for all the grief Donald Trump got and still gets about being not presidential, that right there doesn't sound very congressional to me, Nancy. But of course, no one on the left is condemning the Speaker for her threat of violence. Instead, it's celebrated as valiant, badass and noble. Now, do I think Nancy was or ever will be much of a physical threat to Donald Trump? No, but that's beside the point. The point is, no one bats an eyelash when conservatives are threatened. Yet the Democrats are still crying over January 6th, still trying to make it their Pearl Harbor like political violence isn't something they're familiar with. Like, really? And if you see anybody
2: from that cabinet in a restaurant... In a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd. And you push back on them. And you tell them they're not welcome
1: anymore, anywhere. Some of those answers will come from Republicans. It's not, not the extremists that we're dealing with every single day. We've got to kill and confront that movement.
0: These Democrats cry crocodile tears over January 6th, an admittedly horrible and unacceptable day, but one day nonetheless. And funny, it's the one and only day, still to this day, the Democrats gave a crap about respecting law enforcement. And when it comes to violence against conservatives, which happens daily and often goes completely unacknowledged by mainstream media, all of a sudden these pearl-clutching liberals forget how to speak, cry, whine, bitch, and moan. Weird how that works. So as long as they have their boogeyman Donald Trump, they can get away with it because they've demonized him to such an extent they've convinced themselves and green-haired morons nationwide that any length is necessary to eliminate the threat he poses to the Republic. Lower gas prices, a strong economy, and a secure border must be stopped. But it's not just a Trump hatred, it's a Trump obsession. And guess who is warning Democrats to seek help for that TDS? None other than number 44, the anointed Barack Obama. And we spend enormous amounts of time and energy and resources pointing out the latest crazy thing he said, or uh, you know, the how rude or mean you know some of these Republican candidates behaved. That's probably not something that that um, in the minds of most voters overrides their basic interests. Can I pay the rent? What are gas prices? How am I dealing with? child care. Hell, even Barack Obama gets it. But Barack, you know this. The Democrats have nothing else to campaign on other than Donald Trump, who isn't even on the freaking ticket. The economy, foreign relations, safety, security, immigration, all in the crapper under Brandon. The only folks who miss Trump more than Trump supporters are members of the Democrat Party and mainstream media who have nothing else to show for themselves at this point. What a pathetic time to be a Democrat. Those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.